Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You can download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast just about everywhere, including iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, Audio Boom, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. The show's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. Coming up on Space Time, the alien megastructure star still a mystery, the world's first interplanetary mining mission about to begin, and Australia's changing its address. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Follow-up observations of a weird, erratically flickering and dimming star have failed to find any explanation for the strange stellar behaviour. The star, named KIC 8462852, is so unusual, one scientist even suggested it could be our first sign of a hypothetical alien megastructure called a Dyson Sphere. Dyson Spheres are massive artificial structures large enough to encircle an entire star, harvesting off its energy to power an advanced civilization. Astronomers have seen the strange star dip in luminosity by up to 20%. KIC 8462852 is a spectral type F main sequence star, just a little bit more massive and a little bit hotter than our Sun. It's located some 1,480 light years away in the constellation Cygnus. The new study, reported on the pre-pressed physics website archive.org, examined four years of Kepler Space Telescope observations, confirming firstly that there was no mistake with the original findings. For the first 1,000 days, the star's stellar flux dimmed only by about 0.34% per year. However, over the following 200 days, the star's luminosity dropped by another 2%. Astronomers examined 193 nearby stars and another 355 similar stars, finding none displaying any similar unusual fluctuations. Based on KIC 8462852 spectrum and stellar type, its changes in brightness can't be attributed to intrinsic variability. While the Dyson Sphere hypothesis isn't being taken too seriously, the observations show that the star is flickering and dimming at a rate which simply can't be explained by any single known natural phenomena. The leading hypothesis, based on a lack of observed infrared light, is that a swarm of cold, dusty cometary fragments in a highly eccentric orbit are intermittently blocking out the star's light as seen by Kepler. But that's still not enough to explain all of what the astronomers are seeing. What it means is that it could be a combination of several different natural phenomena, such as cometary swarms, a planetary breakup, maybe even interstellar dust clouds, and possibly the effects of stellar warping, all combining to various degrees to best explain what they're seeing. It's also been suggested that KIC 8462852 is younger than its position and speed would suggest, and that means it may still have coalescing material around it. As for the idea of a Dyson sphere, well, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence SETI Institute's initial radio reconnaissance of the star has found no evidence of technology-related radio signals coming from the star's system.
Well, it's not the Nostromo made famous in the movie Alien, but the world's first commercial interplanetary mining mission will launch a precursor flight next year before venturing off into deep space to mine a near-Earth asteroid. Within just a few years, deep space mining industry's Prospector 1 will rendezvous with a near-Earth asteroid and investigate the object to determine its value as a source of space resources. The mission's an important step in the company's plans to harvest and supply in-space resources to support a growing space economy. As a first step in the project, Deep Space Industries and its partner, the Government of Luxembourg, plan to build and fly Prospector X next year, an experimental mission to low-Earth orbit which will test key technologies needed for low-cost exploration spacecraft. Then, before the end of this decade, Prospector 1 will travel beyond Earth's orbit to begin the first space mining exploration mission. As well as providing the company with a vehicle to undertake asteroid mining, Prospector 1 will also provide new exploration spacecraft technology to the market for what the company claims will be a tiny fraction of what traditional custom-built space probes cost. Prospector 1 is a small spacecraft, just 50 kilograms fully fueled. It will use a unique water propulsion system which the company are calling Comet. It works by expelling superheated water vapour to generate thrust. The water will be the first asteroid mining product. So the ability to use water as a propellant will provide future spacecraft with the ability to refuel in space. Company plans to begin mining asteroids over the next decade. An initial target asteroid for mining has yet to be chosen. Once launched, Prospector 1 will fly to the selected asteroid, map its surface and subsurface, taking both visual and infrared imagery, and also mapping its overall water content down to about a metre below ground level. When this initial science campaign's complete, Prospector 1 will use its water thrusters to attempt touchdown on the asteroid, measuring the target's geophysical and geotechnical characteristics. Well, if you're listening to us from Australia and wondering why your GPS navigation system is always off by about one and a half metres, that's around five feet in old money, well, the reason is the Australian continental plate has been moving much faster than previously thought, about 5.6 centimetres per year, in fact, and the people who keep track of and map these things haven't kept up. It seems the federal government haven't bothered to update Australia's coordinate system since 1994. And that affects everything that uses GPS, from aircraft and shipping through to automated tractors ploughing farmland fields. In fact, it's going to be a serious problem in the near future as automated self-drive cars start to make their presence felt on our roads. The Earth's crust floats on top of the planet's mantle in a series of tectonic plates riding the mantle's convection currents. On average, the tectonic plates drift slowly across the planet's surface at about 2 centimetres per year, about the same rate at which your fingernails grow and about the same rate at which the moon pulls away from the Earth. As new basaltic material rises through the mantle in places like mid-ocean ridges, the older material is drawn back down into the planet's bowels, its subduction zones. The lighter continental granitic material floats on top of this constantly churning tectonic dance. For example, the African plate is ripping in two, forming the famous Rift Valley, which will eventually become a new ocean. For Australia, the problem began about 43 million years ago when the Indian and Australian continental tectonic plates collided as both were moving away from Antarctica. But the collision has never been a happy marriage. 
The Indian Plate is moving north at a rate of about 3.7 centimetres per year, colliding with the Eurasian Plate and forming the Himalayan mountain range. Meanwhile, the Australian Plate is moving, well, it's moving north as well, but sort of north-northeast in direction at about 5.6 centimetres per year. Recent studies and seismic events suggest that the two plates actually separated about 3 million years ago, due primarily to the stresses induced by the collision of the Indian and Eurasian plates. With the last update of Australia's geocentric datum being some 22 years ago now, Geosciences Australia has decided to move the nation's longitude and latitude, in other words its global address, some 1.8 metres further north. The big change of address will take place on New Year's Day, January 1st, 2017. The overcorrection is designed to allow three years for the rest of the planet to realign global coordinates in 2020 as part of a new automatic correction system. The United States Department of Energy has given final approval for a new project to study dark energy, a mysterious force whose properties will determine the ultimate fate of the universe. The 3D sky mapping project, called the Dark Energy Spectroscopic Instrument, or DESI, will measure the light coming from millions of galaxies. The equipment will be installed on the Nicholas U. Mile 4-metre telescope at the Kitt Peak National Observatory near Tucson, Arizona, with observations slated to begin in January 2019. The latest Department of Energy approval step, known as Critical Decision 3, triggers spending for major components of the project. These will include the remainder of the 5,000 finger-width 10-inch long cylindrical robots which will be needed to precisely point the fibre-optic cables in order to gather light from the chosen set of galaxies, stars and quasars. The spending will also be used to complete the set of 10 fibre-fed spectrographs which will precisely measure different wavelengths of incoming light. This light will tell astronomers about the properties of these stars, galaxies and quasars and most importantly how quickly they're moving away from us. See, light from objects moving away from us is shifted to the redder end of the electromagnetic spectrum. It's called redshifting. The degree of redshifting tells us how fast that object is moving away from us. These details can help scientists learn more about the nature of dark energy, which is driving the accelerated expansion of the universe. DESI's observations will provide a deep look back in time, up to 11 billion years ago. During its five-year mission, its robotic array will cycle through separate sets of objects several times an hour. It will look at one-third of the sky, capturing more than ten times as much data as its predecessor called the Baryon Oscillation Spectroscopic Survey, or BOSS. DESI will provide a more detailed look at the pattern clustering of visible matter in the night sky across a much larger range of distances. This clustering, known as baryonic acoustic oscillations, was set in motion by the cooling processes in the early universe that produced sound wave-like oscillations through a combination of pressure and gravitational forces. DESI will also provide a more precise measure of how the universe is spread out over time, helping scientists better understand galaxy evolution and dark matter. Dark matter is just as mysterious as dark energy. We can't see it, but we know it's there from its gravitational effects on normal matter. When completed, the DESI map of galaxies should reveal patterns that result from the interplay of pressure and gravity, which occurred during the first 400,000 years after the Big Bang, 13.8 billion years ago, the time of the cosmic microwave background radiation. In turn, these subtle fingerprints will help scientists study the expansion history of the universe and hopefully uncover the true nature of dark energy. 
You see, there are four possible scenarios to describe the ultimate fate of our universe. The first one is the big crunch. It involves the universe expanding for a while, getting bigger and bigger, until eventually gravity takes over and the whole thing starts to contract again, eventually crunching back down into a singularity. We now know that's not going to happen. Gravity simply isn't strong enough. The second option is a sort of steady state in which the universe's rate of expansion will eventually slow down and things will just steadily coast along. But thanks to the discovery of dark energy, we now know that's not going to happen either. That leaves us with just two scenarios, the big freeze and the big rip. The big freeze scenario involves the universe's expansion rate continuing thanks to dark energy. Eventually, even the nearest galaxies will be so far away we won't be able to see them. The sky will look dark, with only our own local group of galaxies visible in the night sky. But an even more disturbing scenario is the Big Rip, in which the expansion of the universe, thanks to dark energy, continues accelerating at an ever faster rate. Eventually, not only will all the galaxies move away from each other, but so too will the stars, and then the planets, and eventually even the quarks inside atoms will tear apart. Hence the name Big Rip. Even worse news, if a Big Rip scenario is to be the ultimate fate of the universe, instead of taking trillions upon trillions of years, it could occur in just a few billion. A revolutionary 1992 Australian invention which led to Wi-Fi has been chosen by the National Museum of Australia to be part of the History of a World in 100 Objects exhibition which opens in Canberra next month. The exhibition will showcase items from around the globe to explore the last two million years of human history, sourcing the oldest objects from the British Museum's collection and incorporating those from the present day. The National Museum of Australia has chosen to include a 101st object representing a globally recognised Australian invention. And no, it wasn't the motor mower or the hill's hoist, it's Wi-Fi. The groundbreaking CSIRO Wireless Local Area Network, or WLAN testbed, was the precursor to modern-day Wi-Fi. In 1992, researchers from the CSIRO's then Radio Physics Division developed a technological breakthrough in advanced WLAN. Their invention increased indoor wireless transmission rates from about 10 megabits per second to more than 50. It also prevented the distortion of the signal from radio waves bouncing off walls and furniture. The CSIRO's practical solution for high-speed data transmission was a commercial success and it laid the foundation for Wi-Fi, which in turn led to today's computers, pads and smartphones. In 2011, the CSIRO donated the four main hardware components used in the original WLAN prototype testbed to the Australian National Museum. It's especially fitting that Wi-Fi is included in this year's exhibition as 2016 also marks the 100th anniversary since the first Australian national scientific body was formed, the precursor to today's CSIRO. National Museum senior curator Dr Michael Pickering says the invention of WLAN revolutionised the way people all over the world communicate. What it has really done is released people from cable-based communications. That means that no matter where we are in the world today, we can receive and send messages, we can receive and send information, uh, thus rapidly uh, 
facilitating communications of all sorts, no, no matter where we happen to be. And we don't have to worry about all those dust bunnies collected by huge amounts of cables behind our computers either. No, and uh, nor do we have to worry about what happens in our bags when all those cables decide to wrap themselves up into uh, little pretzels. Uh, so yes, it's... Uh, Especially headphones. Yes, they have a mind of their own. Tell me a little bit about the origins of Wi-Fi. It originally came from the CSIRO and it was associated with astronomy, I believe, radio astronomy. Uh, yes, the, the general principles of Wi-Fi had been well known and there were very, very simple Wi-Fi systems operating, but they were too slow to be commercially viable. They just couldn't handle the amount of information that was required to make them useful for usual people. Radio astronomy uh, had been receiving signals from black holes and other space bodies for years and they were coming in in dribs and drabs, often sort of broken up. So what radio astronomy had been working at is somehow taking these particular signals from particular locations in space and joining them up again, you know, pretty piecing them together to synchronise them. And that same principle applied to the idea of domestic or com commercial Wi-Fi as we know it, which is there was the sending of signals, but signals were often being broken up, particularly in small rooms where the signals would bounce off furniture and bounce off ceilings. And you'd end up with a, a real mess of signals which your machine couldn't pick up, especially when it was being sent at great speeds and with great amount of information. It was just far too much noise and far too complex. What the invention of Wi-Fi did was effectively, well, as I, as I was talking with the developers last week, herd electronic cats. It managed to pull all these bouncing signals together, get them all going roughly in the same direction, and to reunify them at the point of reception so that your computer, your phone can take all these signals and harmonise them, synchronise them, and give you the single, solid, constant messages that we have today. And of course, this has got to have ramifications for pure blue sky research too, surely? Absolutely. Uh, blue sky research in, in science, not only in, in science actually, but also across all the disciplines, even in the humanities. The chance to sit and reflect and have the, what if I do that? sort of question. Uh, to just experiment with ideas, to share ideas amongst various people. In the, the case of the Wi-Fi, is, uh, is it was a product of many minds working on certain problems. They came together and there seems to be as much in just the enjoyment of the, of the problem as there was in trying to develop a commercially viable piece of equipment. And as we see, that joy of the problem did end up becoming commercially viable but was it was a blue sky project in its own right. Now this is going to be part of the world in 100 objects. Tell me about this Exhibition. We have an exhibition starting at the National Museum of Australia in September on September the 9th. It's called A History of the World in 100 Objects from the British Museum. So it's based upon objects that are held in the British Museum. It looks at objects from two million years ago, starting off with a stone chopper from Olduvai in Africa, and leads us through various periods, various locations, and various cultures over the next two million years to identify changes in societies, changes in thinking, changes in art through the objects that people leave behind them. With this exhibition, we're invited by the British Museum to include an object of our own, an object that we think represents Australia, but also is, represents a significant breakthrough or a significant event in the history of the world. So the museum chose this particular wireless remote area network, um, or local area network, sorry, which is basically the forerunner to modern Wi-Fi. We figured that uh, when it was part of our own collections, our own holdings, but we also saw it as a significant object in the history of the world. So we'll be putting that on display along with these other objects from the British Museum. That's Dr Michael Pickering from the National Museum of Australia.
New research suggests that it may be possible to create a new form of light by binding a photon to a single electron and then combining the properties of both. A report in the journal Nature Communications claims the combined photon-electron would have properties that could lead to circuits that work with packages of photons instead of electrons. The researchers from Imperial College London say could also allow them to study on a visible scale quantum physical phenomena which govern particles smaller than atoms. In normal materials, light interacts with a whole host of electrons present on the surface and also within the material. But by using theoretical physics to model the behaviour of light and a recently discovered class of materials known as topological insulators, the authors have found that light could interact with just one electron on the surface. This would create a coupling that merges some of the properties of light and the electron. Normally, photons travel in straight lines, but when bound to an electron, these photons would instead follow the electron's path, tracing the surface of the material. Researchers model this interaction around a nanoparticle made of a topological insulator, a small sphere less than 1.000000001 metres in diameter. Their model showed that as well as the light taking on the properties of the electron and circulating the particle, the electron would also take on some of the properties of the light. Normally, as electrons are travelling along materials such as electrical circuits, they'll stop when faced with a defect. However, even if there were imperfections in the surface of the nanoparticle, the electron would still be able to travel onwards with the aid of the light. Now, if this could be adapted into photonic circuits, they would be more robust and less vulnerable to disruption and physical imperfections. The result of this research will have a huge impact in the way science conceives light. Topological insulators were only discovered in the last decade, but they're already providing researchers with new phenomena to study and new ways to explore important concepts in physics. In fact, it should be possible to observe the phenomena in experiments using current technology. The authors believe the process which leads to the creation of this new form of light could be scaled up so the phenomena could be observed much more easily. Currently, quantum phenomena can only be seen when looking at very small objects or objects that have been supercooled. But this breakthrough could allow scientists to study these kinds of behaviour at room temperature. And that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, Audioboom and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. For more, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr. Just search for Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This show is also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts or Audioboom. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, this month exploring the mystery of fast radio bursts.